so often throughout the course of history, patriots rise up at a time of need for truth and freedom. These people are called disciples of liberty for their undying love of freedom. The call has been sounded. Will you answer that call or sit back and let freedom die away? Unifying patriots everywhere against the evil trying to destroy America's freedom. You're listening to the Disciples of Liberty radio show on the America Out Loud Network. Now here's your host, Tim Alders. Hey, welcome to the Disciples of Liberty show. I am Brian Hyde, filling in once again for Tim Alders here on the America Out Loud Network. Well, I've got a doozy of a story to get you going. And again, my stated goal is never to to get people angry. There's enough anger out there. There's enough enough rage just waiting to be expressed. But I will warn you, if you you take blood pressure medication, you may want to, you know, you might want to pop a pill here and get it under control because... I've got something I want to share with you that, uh, well, actually a couple of things I'd like to share with you that really jumped out and grabbed me by the throat and made me stop and think, okay, is it possible we're too trusting of other people? Now, I'm going to start by by pointing out, I don't think it's bad necessarily to be a trusting person. I don't think we all need to be, you know, like some shifty-eyed character out of an old spaghetti western, always looking sideways at everybody and, you know, giving them the side eye. But when it comes to our kids, and particularly the people with whom we trust our children's minds, I think that uh, we could probably do a better job, or that at least we should be aware that there's some stuff going on maybe behind the scenes that we really uh, should pay close attention to and not encourage our kids to be a part of. I'm going to play an audio clip for you. And this is a TikTok from a TikTok video of a preschool teacher celebrating her latest triumph. Now, I'm going to tell you, this is, this is a preschool teacher. So keep in mind, we are talking kids four years of age and under. But listen to what she is celebrating. Story time. This has been my first year in preschool with a class of my own, teaching alongside another queer neurodivergent educator, and we have been rocking our two's class. We've been talking about gender and skin color and consent and empathy and our bodies and autonomy. It's been fabulous. But our teaching team is shifting and a new person is being onboarded, someone with many years of experience. So today at the lunch table, when the topic of gender and genitals came up, one of our students plainly looked up and said, well, I'm a girl today, but I know that teacher Ko isn't. No, they're Envy. And the look on the incoming teacher's face was priceless. She was shocked in a good way. And she just looked around at the two of us and said, this class is incredible. And I am so impressed. Yay! Now keep in mind, we're not talking about college students, adults sitting around the campus quad and, you know, talking about what it means to be neurodivergent or to be non-binary or anything like that. We're talking about preschool kids. 
And she she's celebrating that, uh, oh, yeah, you know, and, and this other teacher showed up and these preschoolers, this one in particular, blew her away because it, this kid was so indoctrinated to know exactly the right phrases to use as if this is something to be proud of. Now, I looked a little bit into uh, that. Co is is the, the gal's first name. Um, Co-create is her, her Twitter handle. But I mean, she's she's really into, I guess, what you would call sex positive education. And, and I'm sorry, this is this is a little bit graphic. So I, I'm, I'm not trying to shock you. But essentially what that means is teaching kids about kink, teaching kids about masturbation. And yes, she has tweets that talk about how can we help everybody discover the joy of masturbation? But she's asking, like, how do I how do I create a safe space to talk to youth about these things away from their parents? Wow. These are kids. These are preschoolers. And we're sitting at the table and we just were talking. And of course, when gender and genitals came up. Now, I'm not suggesting that those subjects should never come up or could never come up, you know, as as young kids are sitting around. But I'm telling you, the kind of discussion that she's referring to is not something kids would organically have for themselves. They are innocent. They don't think in terms of where are we on the gender fluid spectrum and, you know, are, are we are we experiencing enough pleasure in our lives and is there something we could be teaching each other? I mean, this is this is so beyond the pale in terms of what is appropriate and what isn't. And yet, you know, you look Twitter has no problem with this. Oh, no problem here. <laughs> well, what about that uh, tweet from Donald Trump? Oh, yeah, he's mean. We had to ban him. We had to get rid of him. <laughs> I don't know, man. This is, you know, honk, honk. Here we are living in clown world. But that is such an affront to anybody who has any semblance of decency as far as what is appropriate for kids and what isn't. Okay, now in a junior high setting, especially if you're talking about uh, adolescent young men or pubescent young men, I promise you, topics like gender and genitals are going to come up. In fact, they'll probably come up more than you want to just because they're talking locker room talk. Doesn't make it right, but at least that's a time when kids are are joking and they're they're old enough to understand, you know, that uh, hey, this is not appropriate. They wouldn't be doing it with their grandma sitting there at the dinner table. They wouldn't be talking like that. But to take young little preschoolers and to bend and twist their minds to think that this is normal, and and I'm sorry, I'm gonna. I'm, I'm going to vent for a moment here. I, I know I'm doing a really good impression of the old guy who yells at clouds, but uh, Drag Queen Story Hour, to me, is just another example of what this looks like. And and I actually, I have a friend who is a very conservative Republican, um, but he likes to dress in drag. Now, in his defense, he is not about, hey, let's go take this to the kids and let's make sure that the kids are on board and see how much fun it is to, to dress up. Um, he he says he loves to play the role. He loves the the um, theatrics of of dressing up, but he's absolutely not about. Hey, give me your children so that I can teach them that this is is good, or this is is this should be considered normal for their stage of development. I mean, the guy's got a lot of common sense, and I know people may think, well, but if he dresses in drag, is that not? Uh, I don't know. We we all as adults, we all have different things that float our boats. But the fact that he, he recognizes there are boundaries as far as what young, innocent minds should encounter, to me that says, okay, to each his own. But to the people who would take this to kids, 
You know, and, and it's, and by the way, I'm not going to just lay it at the feet of, you know, well, whoever's, you know, hosting Drag Queen Story Hour. It's the parents, too. About a year ago, maybe it was a couple of years ago, I don't know, it's hard to tell, time has passed strangely, but I remember seeing video of a, a local Drag Queen Story Hour that was taking place uh, somewhere in California. I want to say it was in the Oakland area. And it was at a library, a public library, and of course the, the drag queen is reading to the kids, and then, you know, it's like, okay, it's time for questions and answers. Does anybody have any questions? And this uh, Hispanic gentleman, sitting towards the back of the room, he'd been very quiet, but sitting there observing, raised his hand, and he said, yeah, I have a question. He says, how are you going to answer the Lord when he condemns you for what you are doing to these little ones? And the look that came over the face of all the parents and the the drag queen who was was reading to these kids was incredible. It was fear. It was absolute, utter fear for just a second. And then it was like they were all hooting and screeching at him and to get out, get out. And they're filming him. And and, uh, you know, he's but he was very firm about he goes, what you're doing is you are teaching these kids something that will corrupt their minds for the rest of their lives and and he just kept the pastor i mean he he didn't scream at him or anything but he kept telling him you're going to be accountable before god for what you're doing here and of course they chased him from the library and you know they they were just so angry first the horror of being called out and then anger how dare you who do you think you are to do this and I don't know, you know, maybe they were really thrilled. About a week later, uh, someone broke into this pastor's church, painted satanic symbols all over the place and vandalized it. So, you know, he got his, at least in their minds. But I'm I'm not asking that, uh, why can't we all just go back to an Aussie and Harriet kind of existence? I understand. There has always been wickedness and there has always been temptation in the world but doesn't it seem strange that there, there was actually a time when, when people would keep things like that private as opposed to, uh, you know, trumpet it or try to teach it to children? I don't know why it disturbs me so. I'm not, I'm not in the habit of trying to police other people's fun. But I can't help but think that if, if you are promoting this to kids and particularly trying to get their little minds, you know, right, according to whatever is the latest political fad, I think that we are making a really big mistake. And, and for the record, I, I believe that, uh, I believe that uh, Jesus was, was serious when he said, to those who would offend one of these little ones, it'd be better for you to have a millstone hanged around your neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. That's bad, bad news. Now, I'm going to shift gears here because I want, to, I want to step it up to the high school level. And this is something that just happened within the last couple of days. Um, this was in the uh, Alpine, Utah School District. First day of school at Lehigh High School. And this is a very conservative municipality. And this is actually a very conservative school district. My wife was actually a teacher in this district up until just a couple of months ago. And the administration there is good. It's a big district, too. I think it's the biggest school district in the state of Utah. But this teacher starts uh, riffing with her her students about what she stands for. I'm going to play this clip for you. You may have to listen. It's a little bit bit tough to hear because some of the students are cross-talking and what have you. But there's a point where I'm going to stop this. And I want you to hear what she is telling these kids, these teenagers... 
and then we can examine, is this a good idea or not? So here's here's this teacher addressing her new class of high schoolers, first day of school. I'll straight up call it out. I'm like so over it. Okay. Hey, well, I would be super proud of you if you chose to get the vaccine. Yeah, she starts with a little bit of a rant yeah. about uh, the vaccine and coronavirus and masking and so forth. <laughs> yeah. We'll just keep getting Delta. We'll just keep getting variants over and over and over until people get vaccinated. It's never going to end. Exactly. It could end in five seconds if people would get vaccinated. Yes. I hate Donald Trump. I'm going to say it. I don't care what y'all think. Trump sucks. (laughs) He's a sexual predator. He's a literal moron. Go tattle on me to the freaking admin. They don't give a crap. No, he is not. What are you talking about? Turn off the Fox News. Do your parents listen to Fox News? So what? This is my classroom, and if you guys are going to put me at risk, you're going to hear about it. Because I have to be here. I don't have to be happy about the fact that there's kids coming in here with their variants that could possibly get me or my family sick. That's rude. And I'm not going to pretend like it's not. So don't ask me to. That's damn right. (laughs) I'm not going to pretend. I'm not going to lie. If you ask me a legit question, I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to sugarcoat it either. Because y'all need to hear the truth. Okay, here comes the truth. <laughs> you don't have to be, though. That's the thing. Most of y'all parents are dumber than you. I'm going to say that out loud. <laughs> My parents are freaking dumb. Okay? And the minute I figured that out, the world opens up. You don't have to do everything your parents say, and you don't have to believe everything your parents believe, because most likely you're smarter than them. Wow. Wow. Okay, I'm going to stop it there. Okay, it's it's only about a four-minute long clip, but can, can we just talk for a second about you are smarter than your parents. Don't listen to your parents. I don't care. The administrators don't care if the students say anything about this. Actually, that's not true. The administrators did care, and she is now suspended while uh, an investigation takes place. And actually, the administration was really quick to get on this and to um, to pull her back and say, you know, this is not professional behavior. For, for a professional educator, this is not the way that you should be. And she, she, of course, really went off on uh, LGBTQA stuff. She uses a lot of colorful language, drops the F-bomb about people who talk about LGBTQA stuff the way she doesn't like, threatens students in regards to the LGBTA community, LGBTQA community, telling them, if I ever hear you saying something bad, you know, about them, I will find you and I will make your life hell. Now, 
on the one hand, you might think, well, okay, are you if if she ends up losing her job or if she ends up, you know, facing some kind of punishment, or are you going to celebrate that? And the answer is no, because I'm not part of the cancel culture mob. I I don't take joy in other people's pain, even if it's pain of their own doing, even if she's being crushed by her own bad judgment. I'm not going to sit there and pretend like, oh, that's a good thing. Hey, that's entertaining. All right. You know, good stuff. But I shared that with you because I want to illustrate how we have activism taking place at many different levels. I mean, kids just want to watch cartoons, but, uh, you know, they're, they're being lectured by the LGBTQA crowd with, with different characters, with, with advertisements that are trying to persuade them this is the way. You know, the pronoun gang is constantly waiting around every corner to correct them. And, and one of the things that really strikes me about uh, this teacher in particular, do you notice how the, the world, or the universe for that matter, kind of seems to revolve around her? This is my classroom. This is what I think. I tell you this, and I tell you that. It's about me. It's about what I think, and I don't care what you think, and I'll tell you straight. And She's got a captive audience. Utah still has compulsory attendance laws for public school. You only can avoid that compulsory attendance if, as a parent, you opt your child out for homeschool or private school or a charter school. But you got to jump through some hoops. you got to fill out the right paperwork. Otherwise, the state of Utah, like most other states, claims authority to come and force you to send your child to the public schools. I've got a good friend in southern Utah who received a notice. Uh, their family had been traveling quite a bit. And so his son had missed, I don't know how many days of school, but the kid is really sharp and was on top of all of his assignments. He was not lagging behind on anything. But here comes a letter from the school district saying, well, we noticed that your child has missed this many days. And if if your child misses any more days, we will have no choice but to turn this into a legal matter. Meaning we will take you to court and we will seek some kind of way to force you to get your kid here in this classroom. So with a captive audience, I don't think it's too hard to understand that, um, you know, activists of various stripes, in this case, far left liberal activists, are finding that to be an irresistible temptation. To mold minds, and and to me, the the really nefarious part of this, or at least the part that, that makes me stop and say, yeah, I'd have a big problem if that was my kid sitting in that room. And by the way... Had I not moved within the last couple of months, there's a very good chance it would have been my kid. Because one of my son's friends was sitting in that classroom as that that video was taken. There's actually a couple of kids that were taking video on their phones. I'd have a real problem with this. And especially the idea that, well, your parents are stupid. You're smarter than your parents. You don't need to listen to them. Now, I'm sorry if this lapses into an uncomfortable uh, religious territory, but uh, I, I just I want to be clear where I'm coming from with the understanding that uh, I don't have it all you know, down. I don't have all the answers here. But to me, parenthood is one of the most sacred stewardships that any of us will ever face in life. And I believe it is a stewardship where as a parent, you have direct accountability to God for how you raise your children. In a very real sense, I believe parents partner with the creator in procreation and in the, you know, creation of human life. 
and you have someone sitting there in an official setting paid by taxpayer dollars. I mean, if she wanted to, <clears throat> she wanted to host some kind of a club or something on her own time, she wanted to go be an activist on her own time. That's one thing. But on the taxpayer's dime to be sitting there advocating in the classroom, telling them, don't listen to your parents. They're dumb. They're stupid. They watch Fox News. And wow. You know, I, I can remember the exact day that I grew up. I, can't, I couldn't tell you the date. I couldn't tell you other than maybe it was, I don't know, early spring of 1986. But I remember the day that I became an adult. I remember crossing that threshold because that was the day that I was having a talk with my dad. And suddenly it clicked and I realized, holy cow, this guy has been on my side the whole time. I was kind of rebellious as a teenager. I pushed back against my parents. If there was something they wanted me to do, nine times out of ten, I'd, I'd be like, why? Why? You know, why are you making me do this? And I, I was sure they were, they were some team of wardens that were there just to spoil whatever fun I wanted to have. And I made some pretty dumb choices at times. And I know that was tough for my parents because they clearly had taught me, hey, this is not a good idea. But I was stubborn, right? I was smarter than my parents. <laughs> I'm not going to listen to them. So I had to make mistakes. I had to learn through those mistakes. Sometimes there was legit pain involved. But I'll never forget the day that I realized as I was sitting there talking with my dad, this guy has been on my side the whole time. And I just marveled, how did I not see this? So yeah, I have a pretty big problem with the teachers sitting down and telling these young kids, You don't have to listen to your parents. That's undermining parental authority. That's undermining their family. So, I, you know, okay, my rant is over here. I'll step off the soapbox. But I hope I'm not the only person who would have some kind of problem with with a person in in a trusted position of leadership, an authority figure in these kids' lives, coming to them and telling them that. Now, look, I've encountered this on college campuses. I know of college professors who have just come right out and told their students, by the end of my class or by the end of this semester, my goal is to make sure that uh, you are carrying none of the baggage that your parents gave you. If I've done my job, you will question whether God exists. You will question whether, you know, any of the things that your parents taught you were worthwhile or not. But again, in this case, at least you're talking to people who are over the age of 18, who are actually having to stand up and and commit to their own beliefs and live their own lives, which we all have to do eventually. But to have somebody saying this to high schoolers, to have somebody teaching these kinds of ideals to young children, grade schoolers, preschoolers, I don't know. That just sounds like serious indoctrination, and, and I think it's, it's a cancer in our culture. You know, I've heard a lot of talk here of late about people saying, well, I'm really concerned they want to teach critical race theory in our schools. And, of course, the teachers' unions, the NEA and AFT, they're all about, hey, nobody's teaching critical race theory in the schools. Why, you guys, you and your conspiracies, you think everybody's out there to corrupt your kids. But when you hear this teacher talking like she did, I mean, does it seem feasible, given where she's coming from, that uh, critical race theory might be a little something she'd be more than happy to teach to that captive audience? 
So here's the here's the solution, or at least this is this is what I see the great lesson that we could take away from this. It's not, hey, let's go through and let's have a witch hunt and we we burn at the stake all the teachers who are, you know, left-wing activists. No, that's uh, that's not what I'm suggesting at all. What I am suggesting is parents, do you really know what is happening in your child's classroom? And I'll follow that up with a question of what would it take to offend you or to offend your sensibilities so deeply about what is being taught to your child that you would actually pull them out and not allow them to remain in that setting. Now, I can't answer that for you, so I won't presume to. But you better be aware of what's going on in your kid's life and maybe do your part to make sure they know you are on their side. I'm Brian Hyde, sitting in for Tim Alders. This is the Disciples of Liberty show on the America Out Loud Network. My fellow Americans, how did you feel watching footage on the news of domestic terrorists looting our stores and burning our cities down? Uh, You were probably disgusted and angry as much as I was. It's disturbing what's going on. Well, you'd be shocked to know that your shopping habits are supporting these extremists. Companies like Amazon, Nike, Disney, FedEx, it's an endless list. And they've been supporting these radical groups. Let's stop supporting companies that fund these extremist groups. We can all do our part. Visit shoptotheright.com and you'll find businesses in a nationwide database and companies that are aligned with our American values. Visit shoptotheright.com and let's all make a difference. Trouble getting to sleep and staying asleep can be infuriating. Your mind races. You toss and turn, and the harder you try, the harder it is to drift off. And today's digital age makes it even harder. You're not alone with this struggle. Poor sleep affects over 70% of Americans. Even the Centers for Disease Control labeled insufficient sleep a public health epidemic. To take back your sleep, Healthy Cell has created REM Sleep, the only sleep supplement made to support all four stages of human sleep with calming herbs, amino acids, and sleep hormone support delivered in a patent-pending, pill-free, ultra-absorption microgel formula that tastes great. Fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deeply, and wake up refreshed with Healthy Cell's REM Sleep. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order. That's HealthyCell.com, H-E-A-L-T-H-Y-C-E-L-L, and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off. Today, America stands at the crossroads of history. Our actions will determine the fate of our nation. Well, that journey starts here and starts now. We invite you to join us in making the ultimate difference. Subscribe to our podcast and newsletters. Turn notifications on and stay in the know. You'll find all that back at AmericaOutloud.com. Liberty and justice for all. And once again, hello there. I'm Brian Hyde sitting in for Tim Alders. This is the Disciples of Liberty show on the America Out Loud Network. 
Hey, I hope you're paying close attention to the sponsors. They are the wonderful folks who help make programs like this possible. And it would do uh, it would do all of us some good if you, uh, first of all, do business with them if you need whatever product or service they are offering. If you don't, maybe you can refer someone to them. At the very least, maybe take a moment to drop a quick line to them. An email is all it would take to just let them know that their message reached your ears. Might even do some good to tell them, hey, I, I was listening on the America Out Loud Network, and, and let them know this is a platform that reaches you in a way that uh, that gets a response. So diving back in, there's another topic I wanted to share with you. Um, I'm very fortunate, I guess, in the sense that uh, traveling with large amounts of cash has never been in the cards for me. Yeah, I just I don't have the money. <laughs> you know, it's not not that I don't have some savings socked away, but I just I don't deal in large amounts of cash. I've never had my life savings all in one place. So if somebody were to go through my pockets, the best thing they're going to get is probably some exercise, but they're not going to get a whole lot of money. But if you travel with cash, you may not realize that you're taking a huge risk of losing it. And I'm not talking to common thieves. It's not like somebody's going to pilfer it out of your luggage, although that could happen and does happen. You know, TSA sometimes stands for thieves standing around, depending on, you know, who you're dealing with. But it's not the common thieves you have to worry about. It's government agents who behave like common thieves, except they're acting under the color of authority. Got a great piece here from CJ Sierra from Reason.com. And it's the story of a grandfather from New Orleans who lost his life savings to the DEA because he tried to take his money with him on a flight. And it's the latest example of how people who say their savings were seized, uh, people who say that their savings were seized in airports, despite it being perfectly legal to fly domestically with large amounts of cash. In other words, it's not against the law. It's just it's suspicious to the powers that be. And that means that uh, there are plenty of people working within those bureaucracies that are okay with, well, then we need to take it because this is suspicious. We think you might be involved in something shady. Because we all know only drug dealers deal in large amounts of cash. So the article here says the New Orleans grandfather says the Drug Enforcement Administration, or DEA, took his life savings based on flimsy accusations of drug trafficking and without ever charging him with a crime. Now he's fighting to get it back. Kermit Warren, a former longshoreman, says he and his son had gotten laid off from their jobs last year during the COVID-19 lockdowns. And he was trying to turn a side business as a scrapper into a full-time venture. So to that end, he and his son traveled to Ohio with roughly $28,000 to purchase a tow truck. However, when they got there and they looked at the truck, he realized the tow truck was too large for his needs. So he and his son bought a one-way ticket back home. In the airport, three DEA agents stopped the two men and questioned them about the bag of cash they were carrying. And then those agents filed a complaint against his money. Not against him. They accused the money of being guilty of something, of being suspicious. Because we all know that money isn't going to speak up in its own defense, right? (laughs) Guilt is equaled by silence here, right? Okay. Warren, according to the complaint in federal court, it says Warren and his son gave suspicious and incomplete answers about their travel itinerary and plans to buy the truck. Be curious to see what those inconsistencies were. But based on that, the agent seized his money. The complaint alleges that Drug Dog later alerted on the cash and that the DEA had previously received a tip of drug trafficking activity at his son's residence. 
Now, Warren denies any involvement in drug activity. And look, it's okay if they had their suspicions, but uh, at the risk of sounding crass, they damn well better have some kind of probable cause, some kind of of, uh, reasonable, articulable suspicion before they ever start digging into someone's life. And the government's now seeking to keep Warren's money forever through a practice known as civil asset forfeiture, even though there is absolutely no concrete evidence that he was involved in drug trafficking. Now, I know it's, it's easy to think, well, that sucks to be him. But don't miss the point here. If it can happen to someone like him, it can happen to you. Warren is right now being represented by the Institute for Justice. It's a libertarian-leaning public interest law firm. By the way, they do fantastic work. And they filed several lawsuits on behalf of people who have had significant amounts of cash seized from them at airports on the mere suspicion of drug trafficking. Now, Kermit did an interview with the Institute for Justice. He says, uh, the government shouldn't be able to take every dollar I've saved up when I've committed no crime. Since they seized my money, he says, it's been very difficult for me to provide for my family and pay my bills. The way the government has treated me made me feel like dirt. I hope not only to get my money back, but to stop this nightmare from happening to anyone else. In fact, let me play this for you. I want you to hear this in his own words. Here's what Kermit has to say. He seized my life savings, every penny that I've worked for, every honest dollar that I earned, over the last 25, 30 years, it made me feel like I was the dirt on the ground. Kermit Warren is a hardworking grandfather from New Orleans' Lower Ninth Ward. He's had lots of jobs, and for extra money, he also collects and sells scrap metal. I worked at the Port of New Orleans as a longshoreman. I worked as a contractor for the Corps of Engineers. I worked at world-famous Central Grocery, and now I'm currently working at the Roosevelt Hotel as the shine man. But now, the government is using civil forfeiture to try to take nearly $30,000 from Kermit without ever charging him with a crime. Kermit, like many of his neighbors, lost much in Hurricane Katrina. After Hurricane Katrina, I lost everything in my home. My home was destroyed, all pictures, photos, appliances, cars. Kermit, who is the head deacon of his church, helped rebuild his community and diligently set aside money with every paycheck. I've always been a person who humbled myself and didn't go out and spend money unnecessarily. Once I paid my utilities, bought my groceries, I would save a couple hundred dollars per week. When COVID-19 hit, Kermit and his son Leo were laid off. Kermit decided to use his savings to turn his part-time metal scrapping job into a full-time business with Leo. To do that, he needed a bigger truck, and he thought he found one in Ohio. Would you take a cash offer? He said, sure. I said, I'll offer you 30000 cash. He said, sure. I told him I'll be on the next plane coming to Ohio. Kermit and Leo flew to Ohio, planning to drive the truck back to New Orleans. But when they arrived, they saw the truck was too big for their needs. So they bought one-way tickets home. The TSA lady asked me what was in the bag. I I notified and told her that I I had close to $30,000 cash money. Her supervisor told her that it was okay for me to travel with that amount of cash money. So they let me go through. 
I went and sat down to wait for my plane to come. Three DEA agents came to me and asked me, could they speak with me? So he didn't want to hear the story about me showing him the truck. He didn't want me to call the guy who I was buying the truck from. He said, we're going to confiscate your money. He said, we think y'all are up here doing something illegal. I said, man, you're just robbing me for my money. Civil forfeiture turns the presumption of innocence on its head. DEA doesn't have any evidence to charge Kermit with a crime, but they don't need to in order to keep his money forever. Unfortunately, civil forfeiture disproportionately affects racial minorities and the poor. Since they seized my money, it's been very difficult for me to provide for my family and my children and to pay the necessary bills that I need to pay. The Institute for Justice is fighting with Kermit to get his life savings back and to end civil forfeiture. If the government wants to permanently keep your property, it should have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that you committed a crime. What happened to Kermit shouldn't happen to anyone in America. It was, it was my worst nightmare. I never knew my whole 58 years in, in, as a man in the United States that three DE agents could take a man's money from him that he worked for and not had committed any kind of crime or was arrested for doing any type of wrongdoing. How could they just take my money from me like that? Wow. I mean, look, there's a video that's linked with the uh, the story on Reason.com. And, you know, some people may say, well, but it's just stupid. That's dumb to carry that much money around with you. And you're entitled to your opinion of that. I mean, you know, I frankly, I don't know. Maybe I maybe I would think twice knowing what I know about how there are predatory law law enforcement officials who would would look for just that opportunity. Oh, well, that looks suspicious. We better take this. Yeah, maybe I would think twice about it. But it doesn't change the fact there is nothing illegal about flying domestically with large amounts of undeclared cash. Yet federal and local law enforcement officers have a habit of seizing currency from travelers under those civil asset forfeiture laws. Now, there have been some reforms that have taken place on a state-by-state basis. But even those states that have said, okay, we will not allow our police to conduct civil asset forfeiture, guess what? The federal government still very much allows it. And so if they come across a large amount of cash in someone's possession tens of thousands of dollars, maybe hundreds of thousands of dollars. It's not uncommon for those local law enforcement authorities to call the DEA. Hey, send an agent. we got a big bunch of cash here. And the DEA will swoop in and take it and actually kick back part of whatever they've taken to the local law enforcement agency that tipped them off. Kind of a finder's fee, if you will. Can you see the problem here with allowing law enforcement to seize property, cash, guns, Cars, houses, suspected of being connected to criminal activity, even if they never charge the owner or convict the owner of a crime. It just doesn't pass the sniff test. And I'm grateful for organizations like the Institute of Justice, who are currently litigating a separate class action lawsuit on behalf of people whose cash has been seized by the DEA at airports. One of the lead plaintiffs in that case, Stacy Jones, had $43,167 in cash 
seized by the DEA as she was trying to fly home to Tampa, Florida from Wilmington, North Carolina. Now, Jones says the cash was from the sale of a used car, as well as money she and her husband intended to take to a casino. One of the other named plaintiffs in the lawsuit, Terrence Rowland, a 79-year-old retired railroad engineer, had his life savings of $82,000 seized by the DEA after his daughter tried to take it on a flight out of Pittsburgh with the intent of depositing it in the bank. Now, interestingly enough, after that case went public, the DEA returned the money. And the DEA has also agreed to return the cash it seized from Jones, but the Institute for Justice argues that the DEA and Transportation Security Administration's practice of seizing cash from travelers at airports violates the Fourth Amendment. The DEA and TSA often flag airport travelers who exhibit supposedly suspicious behavior, such as purchasing one-way tickets with short turnaround times or traveling lightly. In 2016, a USA Today investigation found the DEA seized more than $209 million from at least 5,200 travelers in 15 major airports over the previous decade. Now, the Institute for Justice attorney Jabba Sitsua, Sitsua, I'm sorry, I'm going to really struggle with his name, Sitsua Shavili said in a press release, the DEA's practice of see money, seize money, counts on people's inability to navigate the maze of civil forfeiture proceedings in order to get their, their property back. The spokesperson or this attorney for the Institute for Justice says that the government shouldn't be able to keep a person's life savings without a related criminal conviction. But people like Kermit are essentially forced to prove their innocence just to keep what they worked so hard to earn. And law enforcement agencies use that money to pad their own policing budgets. And this abuse needs to end. I think the tough part about this is, um, first of all, few of us have that kind of scratch laying around, right? Uh, My pocket money (laughs) ain't even going to come close. So maybe it's hard to feel a little bit of sympathy. Or maybe we just say, well, if you're that nervous, why don't you keep your money in the bank where it belongs? But as I've stated before, there's there's a mindset that is, uh, I think it's it's legitimate that if you can't put your hands on it, it's not really yours. And I think that would apply to money in the bank. People who have trust issues with the banking system, I have no problem whatsoever because I think in some cases there's good reason. And in cases like this, the frustration is that if it, if it was a common robber who came up and said, hey, Stand and deliver. Give me your money or your life. You could fight back up to and including lethal force if necessary to defend your life as well as, you know, defend your life savings. But when it's somebody acting under the color of law or under the color of authority, yeah, you're, you're supposed to just, you know, lay back and try to enjoy it, I guess. Doesn't seem right. And while it may seem like, well, this is only happening to people, you know, who are dumb enough to carry around a lot of money, the, the precedent that is established here and the, the thing that still stands is the idea that some government agent who you happen to catch their eye pretty much has carte blanche to come in and turn your life upside down. And it may not just be money. Maybe they see something else they like. Hey, that's a real nice classic car. Huh, I wonder if a drug dog would alert if we had somebody come over here and walk the dog around the car and presumably signal the dog to sit down or whatever it does to alert. I mean, they don't refer to these uh, drug-sniffing dogs as four-legged warrant generators for nothing. 
It's kind of a nice little end run around the law. Well, let's put the dog on the stand. Let's have him testify to what exactly he smelled. Officer Barkey, do you want to tell us uh, what it was that made you suspicious there was something going on here? Sorry. I'm I'm really suspicious about this kind of stuff, and I, I don't agree with it in the least. But beside the point, it shouldn't be happening, and it's something that uh, you should probably take into consideration if you ever find yourself traveling, even with just, just a few thousand dollars. If there's an amount of money that's that's visible to someone in authority it's likely at risk and you would be very wise not to give them any reason to take notice of you or to consider taking it from you all right moving on i'm going to bring up vaccines i'm sorry i know i'm beating this drum a lot but something that i've noticed is that when it, when it comes to those people who could have received the vaccine but have chosen not to for whatever reason the the possibilities of why they haven't done so are very very limited in, in terms of what we're allowed to discuss because really the only thing that we can possibly consider is to why wouldn't someone avail themselves of the covid vaccine and the only answers that we're really allowed to consider as well they're either selfish or they're stupid or they're clinging to conspiracy theories that's it there is no legitimate uh, possibility outside of that. These are the only possibilities, and that's what we got to work with. Now, I don't agree with that. <laughs> I think that's that's a cop out because uh, for for I'll, I'll just speak for myself. It's the coercion. It's the loss of informed consent and being coerced into something against my will that causes me to abstain. Hannah Cox who writes for the Foundation for Economic Education, has an excellent example of how this is turned into a dilemma for Americans. And she actually has a very interesting case here of a young man who was given the choice of vax or jail. Here's the story. Brandon Rutherford was recently presented with a dilemma in an Ohio courtroom. Get vaccinated or face incarceration. Now, the 21-year-old was sentenced to two years probation for fentanyl possession by Judge Christopher Wagner of Hamilton County, Ohio, back on August 4th. But that sentence came with a twist because Rutherford was ordered to get a COVID vaccine as a condition of his probation. With the understanding that should he fail to comply, he could be sent to jail for up to 18 months. The judge said, I'm just a judge, not a doctor, but I think the vaccine's a lot safer than fentanyl, which is what you had in your pocket. Now, Judge Wagner gave Rutherford 60 days to get vaxxed and said, you're going to maintain employment. You're not going to be around a firearm. I'm going to order you within the next two months to get a vaccine and show that to the probation office. Now, Hannah Cox points out the judge only knew Rutherford's vaccination status in the first place because he questioned him when he arrived in court wearing a mask, which is apparently a rule that Wagner put in place for any unvaccinated people in his courtroom. Now, Rutherford was outraged by the mandate. He said, because I don't take a shot, they can send me to jail. I don't agree with that. He said, I'm just trying to do what I can to get off this as quickly as possible, like finding a job and everything else. But that little thing, meaning the COVID vaccine, can set me back. And the judge's order created a stir, which prompted the judge to issue a response. Judge Wagner said judges make decisions regularly defend regarding a defendant's physical and mental health, such as ordering drug, alcohol, and mental health treatment. 
He also said it was his responsibility to rehabilitate the defendant and protect the community. Now, Wagner's not the only Ohio judge to take such actions. He joined judges in Franklin and Cuyahoga counties who made similar demands. But Hannah Cox says, as Rutherford's case vividly demonstrates, in the wake of COVID-19, the world is grappling with the question of how much control an individual should have over their own body. In other words, bodily integrity, also commonly referred to as bodily autonomy, is a long-standing principle of human rights and individual liberty. In recent years, discussion on this topic has centered around the hashtag MeToo movement regarding sexual harassment and abuse in many of our institutions. It's obvious that violating another person's body is inherently wrong. No one questions this premise when discussing matters of sexual violence. But Hannah Cox says for too many, these clear-cut lines become blurred with other issues, especially when conversation turns to medical bodily autonomy. And history shows there's a long troubling tradition in the U.S. of violating the bodily integrity of Americans, particularly the marginalized and disadvantaged. As an example, a Tennessee sheriff and judge launched a forced sterilization program for inmates around 2017. They allowed people in jail to shorten their sentences by 30 days if they agreed to the medical procedures. And they were thankfully sued over this and the program overturned on constitutional grounds. The attorney who obtained justice in this case, Daniel Horowitz, said at the time, inmate sterilization is despicable. It is morally indefensible and it is illegal. Dang. But it doesn't stop there. I mean, you've got to, you've got to look at, uh, you know, there, there have been other instances in which stuff like this has taken place. And I'm going to pick up, I'm going to draw up a pretty, uh, pretty sad example here. Forced sterilization is not the only medical crime against bodily autonomy, says Hannah Cox. In 1932, the Tuskegee experiment was launched and ran for decades. Have you heard of this? The United States Public Health Service and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention conducted the study, during which they lied to 600 black male participants about their syphilis status and told them they were receiving free health care. In reality, they were given placebos, ineffective treatments, and denied penicillin even as it became widely available as treatment for, for syphilis. And this particular case elevated the issue of informed consent in medical procedures. It highlighted how far the country still had to go in respecting inalienable rights. The right of the people to be secure in their persons, as articulated in the Bill of Rights in the U.S. Constitution. Globally, human rights advocates have fought a long, uphill battle to assert these basic principles of bodily autonomy and informed consent in society. In 1948... The United Nations passed the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Article 3 of this declaration states, Everyone has the right to life, liberty, and security of person. And Hannah Cox reminds us the timing of this declaration is key because it came at the heels of World War II, a period when arguably the greatest violations of human rights in modern history were committed, including forced scientific and medical experimentation on human beings on a mass scale. The subsequent Nuremberg trials held between 1945 and 1949 resulted in the Nuremberg Code of 1947, a set of ten standards that confronted questions of medical experimentation on humans. The Nuremberg Code established a new global standard for ethical medical behavior, and within its requirements, voluntary informed consent 
of the human subject. Then in 1966, the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights declared in its Article 7, no one shall be subjected to torture or to cruel, inhuman, or degrading treatment or punishment. In particular, no one shall be subjected without his free consent to medical or scientific experimentation. She says forced medical procedures are an especially monstrous violation of this fundamental right of bodily integrity and autonomy. Now that lesson was hard learned through the course of the 20th century, but it appears to have been unlearned amid the panic over COVID-19. Now, I want to play a little audio clip for you of a young woman testifying before, I believe it's uh, a board of supervisors meeting in California. But you want to hear somebody who has a pretty clear understanding of where she stands on this issue? Check out what this young lady has to say. This is pure gold. Rooted Wings on Instagram. Nathan Fletcher, I tagged the heck out of you, so I'm sure that you are very familiar with me. Jim Desmond, thank you for your work. Wilma Wooten, this is also directed at you along with Nathan Fletcher. America is not a hospital. California is not a hospital. San Diego, it's not a hospital. This is a constitutional republic that guarantees protection of individual freedom and liberty and due process. This applies to our individual pursuits of medical interventions and health practices. San Diego is not a hospital floor that we collectively have checked into that subjects all patients to equitably prescribed medical care with no due process. Our Constitution does not secure for government power to impose forced equity in medical mandates and interventions or the, punish, or the power to punish carte blanche. There are 3.338 million people in San Diego County, 3,811 people who have died with, with COVID. Of those, 96%, 3,652 had comorbidities with hypertension, diabetes, cardiac disease, accounting for the top three. Median age, 77. That is a total fatality rate of 0.1%. 3.338 million people. That is a clear affinity for a specific vulnerable age and health demographic with majority fatalities prior to available treatment options and prevention. 91% of San Diegans, 60-69, received the injection. 98%, 70-79, received the injection. We remove consent from treating us like we are patients in a hospital ward. We are done. The consent of the governed is removed. We will not comply. We do not consent. Nathan Fletcher, you are on notice. We will constitutionally remove all petty tyrants you, beginning ma'am. now. You. Your time is up. Thank you, next speaker. <laughs> Yeah, she's on fire. I mean, that's that was that was really good. And I love the fact she's wearing a shirt that says, if you're not angry, you're not paying attention. <laughs> but I think she's right. Why do we allow ourselves to be treated like, well, you know, we all checked into this hospital, and so we kind of have to do what they say, and these are experts, and I'm not. I mean, we all have tough decisions to make. And, and it's sad. I've, I've watched some people who have been very staunch advocates of, hey, I am all for your personal autonomy. I'm all for my personal autonomy. And, and there are some, I'm sad to say, who, you know, have succumbed to the pressure and said, look, I, I'm up against a wall. My employment is likely to, to be done away with if I don't get the, the needle. And so they go ahead and they, they take the vaccine. 
And, you know, this is a matter of, of their, it's their choice. I'm not going to be like, you sell out. How could you do this? How could you turn your backs on everything you know is true? No, I, I'm not in their shoes. But I think this illustrates why we have to choose that autonomy. Even if it doesn't make sense to a lot of people, we have to be willing to assert that we are the ones best equipped and, and most knowledgeable to make those decisions for ourselves. And, and the corollary to this is, and we have to be willing to respect other people's decisions, whether we agree with them or not. Hannah Cox completes, uh, she finishes up her column um, saying, look, we don't have to like or condone another person's actions. In fact, we don't have to associate with them, but we must endure other humans acting and living as they see fit without going full Karen and calling the cops. When you argue for government force to violate an individual's bodily autonomy in any manner, you stand on the side of gross injustice and human rights violations. And she says, just ask Brandon Rutherford who now faces jail time over his decisions about what he will or will not put in his body. Rutherford told CNN, I'm not taking the vaccine. And Hannah Cox says he ought to have every right to make that decision. So, we all have choices to make. I trust you to make the right choice for you and yours. Now, how do we get that message across to those who think they know better than the rest of us? I'm Brian Hyde, sitting in for Tim Alders. This is the Disciples of Liberty show on the America Out Loud Network.